Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy Northeast. It's so good to be with you all. Um, I just had a moment in worship where we just sang that last song, Oh But God, Rich in Mercy, and it just reminded me of how I am the last person to be standing in a pulpit preaching to a congregation of people about the goodness of Jesus. When I look back at my life, when I look back before I was a follower of Jesus and all the things the Lord did in my life, delivered me from, set me free from, for him to save me and then call me into ministry is just nothing but his grace. And so the grace of God is good this morning and the Lord is good, amen? Amen. Welcome to Mercy Church. If you're new with us this morning, we love you. We love first-time guests. You have caught us in the middle of a sermon series where we're going through the book of Colossians. We have coined the theme of the book of Colossians as Jesus before all things. And so this morning, we're going to dive in and pick up where we left off, and that's going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. We will take out your Bibles, turn them on, meet with me. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, and we're going to go all the way through Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians 3, verse 12, when you get there, say amen. So last week, Pastor Spence talked about how he had to be trained on how to wear Jordans because he thought Jordans were were a basketball shoe, and um, he realized that you don't play basketball in Jordans, and how he had to learn how to put off the old way of wearing shoes and put on the new way of wearing shoes. And so last week in our sermon series, we talked about Paul calling us to take off or to put off the things of this world. Paul will say things like, hey, take off lust and greed and sexual impurities and all evil desires. And this week, he's going to take it a little step further. He's going to say, it's not just good enough for you to take off the things of this world, to renounce sin. You need to put something else on. You need to clothe yourself in something new. As the people of God who have been called by God, you ought to put these things on. And so Paul is going to give us a long list of things that we need to put on. And the reason he's going to give us these things is because these things are needed to be used in all of our relationships. Paul is going to say, hey, put on these things because you need to carry these things in your everyday relationships. How you relate to the people in your life, put these things on. And so our main idea this morning is your approach to everyday relationships should reflect Christ in every way. Your approach to everyday relationships should reflect Christ in every way. And Paul is going to talk about these four different relationships. The first one is the church, how you relate to the people in this room, the body of Christ. The second one is marriage, how you relate to your spouse. The third one is how you relate to your children, so parenting. And then the fourth one is the workplace. So really, all of these things can be tied up into one big category as Paul is going to teach us how we ought to relate to people in every area of our lives. 
Before we dive in, I want to give you two disclaimers. We have a lot of ground to cover. We got to get from chapter 3, verse 12 to chapter 4, verse 1, so buckle up because we're in for a ride. And then the second disclaimer is, man, as I was preparing and studying this text, I felt this tension in me as I worked through it. This tension of, God, this is a lot. This is a lot that you're asking me to do. I'm just trying to stay saved. I'm just barely making it as a Christian. I'm trying to figure out what it looks like for me to keep following Jesus, and now you're adding some things to me. And so it's gonna feel like a to-do list this morning. It's gonna feel like you need to check the box, check the box, check the box. But I want you to be aware that Paul is not calling you to a list of things that you need to do. He is calling you to a lifestyle. He is saying that because you have professed faith in Jesus Christ and you follow the Lord, you are to live your life in a way that emulates Jesus Christ. This is a lifestyle. So I want you to lean into what he's going to say. Don't check out because there is good news for us this morning. Here we go. Verse 12, the word of the Lord says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let's pray. God, you are rich in mercy, and you are full of grace. And we gather this morning to lift up the name of Jesus, to exalt the King of Kings, the one who came for us, the one who ransomed us, and the one who is still working in our lives this day. And so Jesus, my prayer this morning is that your name will be exalted, that the Spirit of God will move in our hearts and in our minds, and that you will use me. God, I'm convinced of the words that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for you have anointed me to preach good news. And so, God, none of me but all of you this morning, may your people be changed by the preaching of your word. May we leave here today, God, with a deeper desire for Jesus, a greater love, and a greater affection for Jesus this morning, Lord. That is my prayer. God, we love you. We thank you that we can gather together this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. So the rule in grammar school is this. If you see therefore at the beginning of a sentence, you must ask yourself, what is it there for? Absolutely. So let me tell you a little bit about that. So Paul begins this text with therefore in order for us to understand what Paul is getting ready to call us to do and to put on and understand the why behind the what, we need to back up a couple verses. And so we're going to back up all the way to the beginning of our series in Colossians chapter 1. So Paul, if you remember, he is writing from prison. He was arrested for preaching the gospel and leading many people to Jesus. He writes to the church at Colossae because he got word that they're facing a lot of cultural pressures. They were being tempted to run away from Jesus and the teachings of the gospel, and they were worshiping other gods, and they were falling prey to all of these people who were coming in and infiltrating the church, teaching other things other than Jesus. And so he's writing to them to cause them to have a greater devotion and affection for Jesus. And so what he does in chapter one is he opens up and he says, hey, let me paint a clear picture of who Jesus is. He is the invisible God who was there from the beginning. He created the entire universe by the power of his word. He spoke and it came to be. This Jesus is the living word who created every single person in this room who breathed into them the ruah of God, the breath of life, and he made them in his image to reflect him and to reproduce his image in the world. 
This Jesus ultimately left the comforts of heaven and came down into the earth to die on a cross. Jesus hanging on a cross, beaten over and over and over for the sins of the world. The purpose of Jesus' crucifixion was so that he could draw sinners back to a loving relationship with their heavenly Father. This Jesus who is big, he is to be exalted, and what he has done for the world is amazing. It is to be celebrated. And so what Paul is doing here, he is saying that this Jesus who died, who rose, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who is at work in your life, he is renewing you day by day. Paul says this in the text. He's renewing you day by day so that ultimately you will reflect more of Jesus Christ, the one who died for you. And so the reason Paul is writing is he's wanting the people to see, hey, look who Jesus is, look what he's done for you, and look what he is doing right now in your life. He is molding you and shaping you and trying to get you to look more and more like himself. In light of these things, I need you to put these things on because they honor the Lord. They honor the people sitting next to you, and they fulfill the overall purpose of God which is to draw sinners back to themselves that they might be redeemed and renewed and look more like Jesus. So in light of all that, Paul says, put on compassion. That's the first word, put on compassion. Now, the word compassion in the original language means bowels of mercy. It is the most awkward translation of a word, bowels of mercy. So everyone knows what a bowel is, right? If you don't know what a bowel is, I'm sure there's a book out there that you can read and figure that out, but it is an organ that is a part of your digestive system, and this organ is responsible for the excretion of waste out of the body. So anytime you hear someone say, my bowels are moving, get out of the way. You know, there's, there's a stirring, there's a rumbling in my bowels, and they're trying to get to the bathroom because they got to do something about it. Well, this is what the word means. And so compassion also means mercy. It means there's this stirring up in you. And I like to think about it that Jesus was one of the most compassionate persons ever. I think of the text in Mark chapter 1 verse 40, it says, a man came to Jesus who had leprosy and he fell down and he began to beg him, Jesus, will you have mercy on me? Jesus, will you have compassion for me? And the text says, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and he touched the man. Compassion is something that flows out of you naturally in response to what Jesus has done for you. Jesus had compassion on you and he had compassion on me when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Jesus has compassion on us right now and therefore we are to be a body of believers who are quick to allow compassion and care to flow out of us. It should spill out of us in essence. So when someone is suffering among you, Are you compassionate? When someone comes to you confessing sin and brokenness in their lives, are you compassionate towards them? When another brother or sister is just having a rough time, are you compassionate? Does compassion flow out of you in response to the gospel? Paul then next says to put on kindness. The word here is simply put, someone who is sweet. A sweet person, they are nice, they are kind, they are considerate, they have the ability to put you at ease. We all know those people who, they walk into a room and they just bring peace when they come in the room. And then we know those people who walk into the room and they bring anxiety and you're kind of like, don't want to be around you, I'll take peace, please. But this is what it means to be kind. They are considerate of others. Tim Keller, a former pastor, he said this, kindness isn't just about saying nice words. 
It's about showing our love in practical ways with our resources that reflect how we value someone. I think of this story that I heard not too long ago of um, some immigrants who moved to our country. They joined and they got a part of a community group. And because they were awaiting their green card, they couldn't get certain jobs. And so they didn't have a lot of money. And then they end up having this major car repair and they shared that with their community group. And behind the scenes, the community group sent out a group me message and they started raising funds for this couple to get their car repaired. And then one night in community group, they presented them with this lump sum of cash for them to get their car fixed. Can you imagine this couple who just moved to our country, awaiting their immigration status, trying to fight to find money and a job in the midst of having a major car repair, receiving this money from their friends? Imagine the joy that is overflowing in them, the tears that are rolling down their face as they experience the kindness of their community. I love what Plato, the Greek philosopher, once said about kindness. He said, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a harder battle. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a harder battle. Meaning that everyone you engage, you never know what is going on in their lives and your kindness towards them can be healing to their soul. Are you kind? Thirdly, Paul calls us to put on humility. The word here means to to bring oneself low to the ground. Now, if I was to do a poll this morning and ask you how many of you are humble, how many of you would actually raise your hand? I hope none of you would, because that is the antithesis of humility. I actually cringe when someone says, hey, describe yourself, and they go, I'm humble. And I'm like, dude, no, you're not humble. Nobody who is humble walks around going, I'm humble. That's just not what humility is. Humility means it is, it's an attitude of the heart. It's a posture of the heart that says, it's not about me. I'm not the center of attention. The world does not orbit around me. Look at your neighbor and say, it's not all about you. Parents, if you have kids sitting beside you, look at your kids and say, it's definitely not all about you. <laughs> Amen to that. Humility is an attitude of the heart. It's not about me. One pastor said, humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less about myself. It is thinking about myself less. The thing about humility is that it cannot be attained directly. Humility is something that flows from the gospel. Humility is something that I call gospel confidence. Humble people have a deep down gospel confidence. What do you mean by gospel confidence, Derek? Gospel confidence is this. It is simply you recognizing that you are broken and you are flawed and you are needy and that a great God came to rescue you and he is still rescuing you. Gospel confidence says that you realize that there was nothing you could do to make Jesus love you. There was nothing you could do to make Jesus save you, but God decided to save you because he was rich in mercy and full of grace. Gospel confidence is you recognizing just how low you are, but a great God came to rescue you and bring you up. It's a deep down root in the gospel. In the gospel, we have a confidence not based on performance, but based on the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this humility, it frees the heart so that it's not always looking at itself. It reminds me of some of my kids sometimes when they're like competing and dancing. They're like, look at me, look at me, look at me, daddy. Look at me, look at me. And then the other kid is like, look at me, look at me. And I'm like, I can't, do, I can't, I can't. 
But deep down inside, that is what pride is. Pride is, look at me, look at me. I need to be the center of attention. Look at what I am doing. Humility says I'm taking the attention off of myself, and it frees you. Next, Paul calls us to put on gentleness. Help me, Jesus. I'm still growing. I confess that right now. (laughs) Gentleness. He says, put on gentleness, which is a soft touch. The imagery of gentleness is a mother caring for her young child. I think of this image that should flash on the screen here of, of gentleness. Paul in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. When you see this picture, what comes to your mind? What emotion comes to you when you see this picture? When you see this picture, what do you sense God might be saying to you as his son or as his daughter? Do you think of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29 where he says, I am gentle and low? Do you see a Savior who is gentle and tender towards you this morning? Do you see a Savior that when you fail day in and day out and sin over and over again, this gentle Savior comes and he pulls you close and he says, I forgive you. I've forgiven you of your past, present, and future sins, and I am with you. Gentleness is a soft touch. It's tenderness. It is the epitome of who Jesus is. But here's the thing about gentleness. Though gentleness means tenderness and a soft touch, it does not mean weakness. You can be gentle and not weak. You can say the hard things and you can tell the truth and still be gentle because it's rooted in your tone and your disposition. So often in my marriage, my wife goes, Derek, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. And I'm like, I just told the truth. The truth hurts, right? People don't want to hear the truth, and that's their problem. I just said what I really felt and what I thought. And she's like, dude, with your hands up and your neck twisting and you're yelling at people, nobody can receive what you're saying. I'm like, well, they clap back on me, so I'm clapping back too, you know. The Lord is sanctifying me. I promise I'm not the clapback pastor who goes around fussing people out. No, he's working on me. But gentleness means that you can be tender and you can be soft and you can say the hard things to those in your community and you can tell the truth. Paul then calls us to put on patience. Patience, which means to remain under, to remain under. One theologian said it this way, patience is the ability to take trouble from others or life without blowing up. Patience is the ability to take trouble from others or life without blowing up. And the reality is the test of patience shows up in our lives every single day. And if you're anything like me, how many of you pray the infamous prayer, Lord, help me be patient? Raise your hand. Lord, give me patience. If you didn't raise your hand, you're lying. Lord, give me patience. God, help me. That just means you're a patient person. Um, Lord, give me patience. And the Lord is like, yes, I'm so glad you prayed for patience because I got something in store for you. I'm going to let you get stuck in traffic for 30 minutes. And what do you do? You pull out that phone and you're like, boom, 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 boom. Like you're trying to find the alternative route, the fastest route to get to where you have to go. Then you start laying on the horn, people getting in your way, you're bonking the horn, you're speeding, you're bumper to bumper. I've seen how some of y'all drive. I think some of y'all cut me off one time. (laughs) But you're impatient. You cannot remain up under the additional 30 minutes of your commute. 
Or the Lord says, yep, I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm going to allow one of your children to get sick, and you're going to have to go to school and pick them up. And they're going to become very clingy and needy. And you're going to be like, dang, dude, you just disrupted my day. I got to finish out work. And then you start snapping on them because they're sick. Or he allows you to show up to community group, and then you realize, man, nobody came prepared. Everybody was late. Nobody's answering questions. It's just dead silence in here. And your community group leader is just so frustrated with you. Or somebody in church says something that you disagree with, and you are frustrated, and you're ready to tell them and argue with them your point of view. Patience looks like being slow to speak and quick to listen. Patience looks like believing the best in people until they prove you wrong. Patience looks like fervent prayer for the situation or people. Are you able to remain up under the pressures of life and remain up under the pressures that come from other people? Moving on, verse 13, Paul will call us to put on, in verse 13 he says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. To bear with one another means to endure something unpleasant or difficult. Paul's call here is that believers need to learn how to bear and endure with one another in your differences and in your frustrations. I think of like many of my best friends today, I like to choose friends based upon my preference. I think choosing friends should just be simple and easy and I pick my friends based upon what's comfortable to me, what's convenient to me. But many of my best friends today, we have nothing in common like nothing in common. I remember when I first met my good friend Tyler. We lived in Virginia at the time, and Tyler had this old white F-150 pickup truck with American flag on the back. I mean, it was the dirtiest truck. And he comes in blasting country music, man, with his hand on the wheel, and like he steps out and he has on like a, a t-shirt, a tank top that's American flag, some jean shorts and cowboy boots. And I'm like, who is this redneck? Like, who is this guy? Like, he thinks he's cool, and it's just not. Man, I love Tyler. Counseled him and his wife, married him a good friend today. Many of my best friends today, our skin color is different. Our upbringing was different. We're in completely different tax brackets. We had completely different socioeconomic statuses. Many of my friends are big sports guys. They can tell you all about the drafts, and I'm kind of like, dude, I don't care. I'm just here for the wings. If I'm at your Super Bowl party tonight, hey, I'm just there for the pizza and wings, dog. Um, don't really care about sports. Many of my friends were um, country music lovers, and I'm a hip-hop head. I don't, full disclosure, I don't really understand country music. I know Darius Rucker. <laughs> Rock me mama like a wagon wheel, run me. That's all I know. That's probably as far as I'm going. But I didn't let that divide us. Hey, unity for the sake of the body. I am a naturally blunt and direct person. I just shoot you straight and I just, I just say it like it is. A lot of my friends are more gentle, they're a little more passive. And I think about a lot of the arguments that I have with my friends and I'm so glad that in the midst of those arguments and those frustrations that I just didn't go, man, bump it. I'm gonna walk away and we're never gonna be friends and I don't wanna deal with this. Because the reality is your inability to bear with one another your inability to bear with people who don't look like you, who don't have the same socioeconomic background status as you, people who are just completely different with you, if you are unwilling to bear with one another, it's a sign of emotional and spiritual immaturity. And in so many words, you need to grow up. People are different. 
God has created a beautiful world with many different expressions, many different personalities, many different backgrounds, and the unity of the body is that we learn how to relate and accept one another for how God has made us. How many of you go back and have conversations with some of your best friends and like, hey man, you remember we were duking it out over this? Like, you remember we got in an argument about that? Aren't you so glad that we pressed through that and now we're best friends today? To bear with one another means that you and I learn how to respect differences, embrace conflict, and that we seek to learn rather than to be heard, and we're slow to judge. Paul pushes us a little further, and he says, all right, you need to bear with one another, but you need to extend forgiveness in all of your relationships. Conflict is going to happen. There's going to be drama. It's going to happen because you have a group of sinners coming together in one relationship, and so we know that sinful things are going to come up out of us. So Paul is saying that you need to extend forgiveness. Forgiveness is an act of grace, not often deserved, but freely given. Forgiveness is an act of grace, not often deserved, but freely given. And I know that for some of you this morning, you probably struggle with forgiveness. Somebody hurt you, somebody sinned against you, there is trauma that happened to you because somebody else did something to you, and you're struggling to truly forgive. Not forget, you don't have to forget, but truly forgive. And your lack of forgiveness is rooted in a gospel deficiency. Meaning, you have forgotten what Jesus went through in order to forgive you of your sin. You have forgotten that your sin put Jesus on the cross, and he freely forgave you of your past, present, and future sins. I remember in college wrestling with unforgiveness. My dad left when I was five years old, and I could never understand why he would leave his family. And so for much of my life, I thought, man, is, was it my fault? Was it my mom's fault? Like, why would my dad leave us? And so I had bitterness and hatred towards my dad, majority of my life. Every year around Christmas time, I had to go visit dad, I had to go visit grandma, and I remember I would cry and I would go, I hate him, I can't believe he did this to us. I was 19 at the time, and my college pastor said to me, Derek, you're going to have to deal with that unforgiveness, because what your dad did to you doesn't compare to what you did to Jesus. And if Jesus can freely forgive you of all of your sin, you can freely forgive your dad. And I knew in that moment that I had to sit down with my dad and look him in the eyes and share with him all the pain and all the hurt and then say, hey, dad, I forgive you. I am not holding this against you. You see, unforgiveness robs you of your joy. It sucks the life out of you and God is calling you to be free of that unforgiveness and that bitterness because it does not do your soul any good. Forgiveness is rooted in the gospel and understanding that Jesus freely forgave you. However, forgiveness does not mean that you forget the hurt or the trauma that was caused to you. You don't forget that, nor does it mean that you trust that person again, nor does it mean that you willy-nilly just enter freely back into a relationship with the person who keeps hurting you. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is you choosing not to pay that person back for the wrongdoing or the grievance against you. Forgiveness is not you, forgiveness is you choosing not to seek ill will against them or wish harm against them. Horizontal forgiveness is impossible until you understand vertical forgiveness. And then Paul wraps it all up and he says, hey, above all, you need to clothe yourself with love. 
Love is the unifying agent. Your unconditional love for your brothers and sister in Christ is the binding agent that puts it all together. I like to think of it this way. I like to think of it as baking. So I love to bake. Some of you probably know that. I love making homemade cinnamon rolls, pastries, cookies, just love baking. And my wife hates baking. And the reason she hates baking is she said it's too many ingredients. And she's right, there's, there's a method to the madness. So in baking, you have all of your dry ingredients in one bowl, you have all your wet ingredients in one bowl, eggs have to be at a certain temperature, butter has to be, at a, like it's just so much that goes into it. But in all of baking, there is one thing that unifies them or is considered the binding agent, and that is eggs. You need eggs in almost every single recipe because eggs is what provides stability and structure. Without eggs, you have meringues that are cracked and cookies that crumble and do not hold together and cakes that are dry. In the same manner, Paul is saying love is the binding agent for compassion and gentleness and kindness and patience and bearing with one another. If you do not have love, you are nothing is what Paul says. And so he's saying clothe yourself in all of these things, but make sure you have love. Jesus will say this in John 13, 35, by this people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, your unconditional love for the people sitting in this room. And now Paul shifts into the second relationships that we're gonna focus on. The first is for the church, the body of believers. Now he's gonna shift and he's gonna talk about the home. He's gonna say, hey, put on all of these things, compassion, gentleness, kindness, clothe yourself in love. Now we're gonna focus on the home and I'm gonna give you a little more things that you need to, to live out in your home. The home is one of the primary places that a lot of this is gonna be played out. So he breaks it down into three different relationships, marriage, parenting, and the workplace. Marriage, parenting, and the workplace. And this is what he says in verse 18. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. And I read these verses and I thought to myself, Lord, I've been married for 15 years and I'm still trying to figure out marriage. And maybe you're here this morning, you're like, dude, I've been married for 30 years and I'm still trying to figure it out. Or maybe you've been married for two years and you're like, I don't know what's going on, I'm just trying to figure it out. Or maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I'm, not, I'm single, I'm not thinking about marriage. Here's what I wanna to say to everybody in the room. For those of you who are married, God has given us instruction on how we ought to live out our marriages. For those of you who are single, God is giving you wisdom and knowledge for in case the Lord blesses you with marriage. So here's what he's saying. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. Now, when we hear the word submit, I know for many wives in the room, they cringe. Because the word submission has been abused for so long. For so long, the word submission from men to their wives has been basically, woman, you do whatever I tell you to do. For so long, submission has been women are inferior. For so long it's been when I get home I want a nice hot meal ready to go. That is not submission. You see in the old patriarchal system the husband was the dominating ruler of the home. And so they ruled their home pretty much with an iron fist. Well in Jesus Christ when we are made new the husband is no longer the ruler of the home. He is the leader of the home who is submitted to the ruler of the home, Jesus Christ. And so it shifts. So Jesus Christ is now the head of the home. The husband is now following after Jesus. And submission basically means that the wife is lending trust to her husband because her husband is following after Jesus. 
So Jesus rules the home. The husband is the spiritual leader. The wife submits to her husband. She lends trust to her husband as her husband is following and chasing after Jesus. And so what this means for you husbands in the room this morning is you have to be following after Jesus. You have to be actively seeking the Lord and chasing after the Lord with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Husbands, this means that you can't just be laying around passively, allowing your wives to lead the family spiritually and directionally. God has called you to guide and direct your home. You have to lead with love. Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, here's how you are to love your wives. Your wives, love them like Christ loves the church. Well, how does Christ love the church? He's patient with them, he's gentle, he's kind, he bears with them, he forgives them, he's not harsh with them, he's not easily angered with the church, he's not rude to them. So in the same manner, the call for husbands this morning is to put on these things and love your wife as Christ loves the church because the way you love your wife, her submission to you is connected. Her submission to you is connected to how well you love her. But notice in the text, Paul says, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. So here's the caveat for submission. The only reason you will not submit to your husband is if your husband is abusive, if your husband is leading you to sin, if your husband is leading you to break the law. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're struggling, you're, Pastor, I am struggling with this submission thing because you don't know what's going on behind the scenes in my home. You don't know what it's like to live with my husband. You don't know the abuse that I'm going through. You don't know the trauma that he's causing to our family this morning. And I want to say to you this morning and encourage you to seek help. We have pastors and staff women that are going to be at the back at the end of our worship gathering for you to pray with, to have conversations with, because this is real. You need help, and I encourage you to seek that help. Moving on to parenting. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Children and youth, this is very simple. Obey your parents. That's how simple it is. Children and youth, God has called your parents to lead you, to shepherd you, and guide you, and train you up in the way that you should go. And so as long as you are in your parents' house, you are under their authority, and the call is for you to obey them. But notice the clause here. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. There's a caveat here in this text as well, and that is similar to wives, Children, if your parents are causing you to break the law, causing you to sin or abusing you, you too, I want to encourage this morning to go and talk to one of our counselors, our prayer, um, we have prayer people that are going to be in the back and our pastors are going to be in the back for you to share with them what's going on in your life. And I I put this in here this morning because the reality is that there, there are probably people in the room facing and going through this. And so we want to create a space where you can share and create a space where you can be cared for well. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. 
I think about my own parenting and I have expectations for my boys, I have standards for them, and rightly so. I call my children to excellence in all things, rightly so. Fathers, you should too. If you're a father this morning, you should have standards for your children. You should have expectations for your children, but not to the point where you begin to burden them with their expectations, with your expectations, and they feel like they can never live up to your standards. So often I ask my kids to do something and I realize, man, I've asked you to take out the trash 30 times already. Dude, I've asked you to do this. And so I just start nagging them and just getting on them about doing these things. And after a while, they're frustrated and they're like, oh, dad. And then they just kind of storm off. And in those moments, they're not responding to me. They're silent and they're frustrating. In that moment, I have provoked my children and I have discouraged them. And that is the complete opposite of what Paul is calling us to. Have standards, call your children to excellence, but not to the point where they never feel like they can achieve your standards. Our children are a gift from the Lord and we are to steward that gift well. All right, last one, here we go. Last one, verse 22. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleases, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Chapter four, verse one. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. And every time I read the word slave in the Bible, I cringe. I just cringe thinking about it. But here's the thing about the word slave in the Bible in the historical context. The word slave actually means indentured servant. This is, pre-civil, um, this is pre-Civil War, this is pre-slavery, the oppression and the selling of African Americans during the Atlantic slave trade. This is way before that. So the word slave in the Bible means indentured servant, and basically these were people who lived in the home with families. So they cooked, they cleaned, they did yard work, they helped take care of children. Modern day, the application will be, think of nannies or butlers or housekeeper, people who live with families and help their families. This is what it means and this is what the text is calling us to. So our application to this will be the workplace. Everyone in here has a boss. Most likely, many of us have employers and many of us are employees. So the call is, if you have a job, if you're an employee, it is simply this, obey your bosses and do your work well. Do your work as unto the Lord. Work wholeheartedly towards your job because God in his grace and sovereignty has provided you with a job even if you hate your job. Even if your job sucks in this season, God is calling you to be faithful and do your work because that pleases him. The call is to to not cut corners, don't cheat the system, show up on time, show up, be prepared. Honor the Lord in your work. How are you honoring Jesus in your work? If your colleagues were to look at your work ethic, would they be able to tell that you follow Jesus? Is your work ethic a witness to who Jesus is in your life? Then to employers and supervisors and business owners, the text says treat them as if they are the people who were created in the image of God. Those who work under you, those who work for you, they are God's children, they are God's possession, and so the call is for you to treat them appropriately because one day you will give an account and stand before your boss, Jesus Christ, and give an account for everything that you've done. So regardless of whether you're an employee or an employer, clothe yourself in the character of Christ, put on love, and do your work as unto the Lord, and treat people justly. So we made it through. We made it through all those verses. And here's the thing, again, 
The tension is for this to feel like a long to-do list, but the reality is God is calling us to a lifestyle, to live out these things. And none of us are going to do them perfectly. Some of you failed on your way to church this morning in your marriages. You got in an argument on the way to church. Some of you last night, you got in an argument with your spouse. Some of you in community groups, some of you got in an argument with your roommate. You will fail. I will fail. We will make mistakes. We will do none of this perfectly. But the good news is that Jesus did all of this perfectly. The Son of God was the perfect, compassionate Savior. He was the perfect, gentle, and kind, and bearing, and forgiving Savior who is now at work in us. My son Judah, who is two years old, he is very independent right now, and so he loves to put his um, clothes on by himself. And so often Judah will put on his underwear and they're backwards, and he'll go, other side daddy, other side mommy, and we'll go, other side Judah. So he'll take off his underwear, turn around and put it on the right way. And then he puts on his pants and he puts his pants on backwards and he looks at you and he goes, other side? And we go, other side Judah, that's not the right way. And then yesterday he was putting on his shoes and he goes, daddy, other foot? And I go, Judah, other foot, the other foot, wrong foot. But so often Judah attempts to dress himself, to put on his clothes, to put on his shoes, and he gets frustrated with himself. And he flops down and he says, Daddy, help. Daddy, help. I need help, Daddy. And the father, me, I run to him and I help him and I get down low and I put his shoes on and I help him because as a father, I delight in helping my son. There's something in me as a dad that goes, man, my son needs me. He is dependent upon me and he wants my help. And so I run and I reach down and I help Judah put on his shoes. In the same manner, when you cry out to the father and say, help me, daddy, I need help in my marriage. I need help in my parenting. I need help in my relationships. The father is delighted and he runs to you and he scoops down and he says, I'm going to help you walk this out. You see, some of us need to be like a two-year-old who just flopped down on our knees on a daily basis and says, Lord, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. I need help, God, because I don't know how to do marriage. Jesus would say, apart from me, you can do nothing. And for some of you this morning, you are struggling in your marriage, you are struggling in your parenting, in your relationships, because you are doing it all independent of the power of Jesus. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ lives inside of you, and he stands ready to help you. Will you receive his help this morning? Would you bow your heads this morning with me as our band comes, as we close out our time? The invitation this morning is, will you ask the Lord for help? Would you ask your daddy for help? Hebrews 4 says that we can approach the throne of grace and find help in time of need. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take a moment and reflect, where do you need the power of God in your life? What relationship this morning that's broken, that is barely hanging on, and you say, I need God's help? I want you to begin to ask God for help. Lord, help me in my marriage. I need you. God, help me in this relationship. God, help me with this. There's some of you here this morning, the Lord put on my heart that you're struggling with unforgiveness. You won't let that go. 
And you need to ask the Lord to help you let it go. It is not good for you. Maybe some of you this morning, you've given up on a brother or sister too quick. You've written them off. They've sinned, they've sinned against you, they've sinned against someone else, they failed, they dropped the ball, and you've written them off as a brother or sister in Christ. And the Lord is saying, would you extend a hand of forgiveness and compassion to them? You take a moment and reflect, and I'll close this out in prayer in a moment. Jesus, we are poor and needy people. We are broken, we are flawed, we are imperfect, but you are none of those things. You are perfect, you are holy, you have it all together and you hold us this morning in the palm of your hand. And this morning, God, you hold our marriages in the palm of your hand. You hold our children in the palm of your hand. You hold our relationships in the palm of your hand. And so, Lord, we call upon you, Jesus, to help us. Lord, there are hurting people this morning. There are people who are in abusive marriages, and there are people who have abusive parents. God, they. There's so many needs represented this morning and we call upon you, Jesus, for help and strength and healing and wholeness. So God, I pray for those who need to share this morning what is going on in their lives. I pray that you'll give them the boldness to go back and talk to one of our pastors or one of our staff women. Lord, I pray that you would empower the person who needs to let go and freely forgive. I pray for the person who needs to reconcile to another brother or sister this morning, that you will give them the boldness and the faith and the love and the gentleness and the compassion and the kindness, the humility to reconcile, that in their hearts they will be reminded that they're no better, that we're all broken trying to follow Jesus. Lord, help us this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.